Welcome to Amato's fifth quarter podcast. Listen to incredible conversations with former high-profile AFL, A-League and NBL players who discuss their lives and respective professional sporting careers. Previous guests welcomed on the podcast include... Nelson Fletcher, Al Gordon, Travis Stork, Craig Body, Tyson Edwards, Brett Maher, Dale Pickett, Eugene Gretchen, Kevin Brooks, Jack Fitzpatrick, Bill McDonald, Sam Jacobs, Calvert, Marcus Ferguson, Sean Redditch, Tony McIntyre, Andrew Vlahov, Graham Corn, Brian Curl, Jason Ekamanis, Chris McDermott, Mike Ellis, Kevin Litch, Matt Smith, Michael Wilson, Brendan T, Jordan McMahon, Brett Burt, Matt Shanahan, Rupert Stapwell, Dusty Rokart, Sam Gibson, Ricky O'Loughlin, Dylan Addison, Daniel Georgetsky, Dom Tyson, Sergio Fendai, Adam Snyder, Ricky Grick, Rick Latson, Rod Jamison. Links to all previous episodes are down below for your listening pleasure. But without further ado, let's get into this next episode of Amato's Fifth Quarter. They've got a brand new stadium, a big one. And they're going to put a big flag up there in a moment because the Eagle has landed They're the Premiers in 2018. There it is. Brisbane have won it. The Orange Order is restored. It took just one season of transition. But Brisbane Raw, Premiers, now title winners, champions of Australia. The 17-year drought is over. All hail the Kings! Sydney, the NBL 22 champions! 3-0 sweep, they win it! 97 to 88. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast, Episode 41. This is your host, Daniel. Hoping everyone is doing well. All is very good and very grateful from this end. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by 1997 AFL Premiership player, Rod Jamison from the Adelaide Football Club. Throughout this conversation, Jamo and I discuss his early days playing for Glenelg in the SANFL under Graham Corns the 1990 grand final loss to Port Adelaide and almost signing with North Melbourne during this time before eventually deciding to sign with the Adelaide Crows who were coming into the AFL for their first season in 1991. So we talk about the first pre-season with the club and of course their first ever game against Hawthorne in round one of the 1991 season. Scoring the match-winning goal in round 12 of that same season against Fitzroy, that famous goal, from about 50 metres out to win the game, which putting himself in the history of books, winning Adelaide's first leading goal kicker award, the famous first ever showdown, round four, 1997, against Port Adelaide, including that famous stoush with Scott Cummings, the incredible 1997 AFL Premiership victory against St Kilda with the Crows under the Messiah, Malcolm Blight, the disappointment of missing the 1998 Premiership the year after, And of course, the ending of an era, not just for himself as a player retiring in 1999, but for the Crows as well. Of course, they finished 13th in the 1999 season. So throughout his playing days from 1991 to 1999, Rod Jamison played 153 games in the AFL, scoring 113 goals. He is an AFL Premiership player in 1997 and he was also the Adelaide Crows' leading goal kicker in 1991, the first person to ever win that award for the club. 
So let's welcome him on the show from the Adelaide Football Club, Rod Jamison. The Lions have stopped their roaring. The Bulldogs have lost their bite. The Blues have got a case of the Blues. Here's the reason why. Here we go, here we go, can we grow? Jamison storming through the middle, 60 metres out. That's a magnificent kick. Just to settle it down, Jamison, great mark. And he's been playing in front of Wellman all day. Measures of Jarman back inside. Jamison, goal. Welcome back to Amato's fifth quarter podcast. And today we've got Premiership player from the Adelaide Football Club, Rod Jamison. Jamo, thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show tonight. Daniel, absolute pleasure. Could you give the listeners a bit of an update as to where you're at in life now and, and also how you found the transition from playing football into quote-unquote ordinary life? Yeah, well, Daniel, I guess initially the transition was reasonably easy for me because I retired at the end of 99, started 2000. At that point, that was sort of the significant reason why I retired because the club went full-time in 2000. So... Being almost 30 at that time, I was six foot one. The club weren't breaking down my door to say stick around. So I ended up retiring and I continued on working because we all had jobs at that particular point. So that particular point of my life, I'd finished up 17 years in advertising and marketing. And then I was just starting out a new career in finance, which I've done for probably 17 and a half years now through retail consumer banking and then part of technology providing banking platforms to the banking industry so I also have three daughters one of them isn't at home and I two are and they're at high school at the moment so married and life is very busy so it's interesting you you say that and and that's one thing I didn't actually realize that it coincided 2000 was the year AFL became full-time what was it like back in your day to have to juggle work and also football? Yeah, I, I was very lucky. I had a very accommodating a few employees as well across that time, the 10 years. And look, it was the challenge of it was, it was a long day. So pre-season, we would train Monday, Wednesday, Friday, both morning and night. And that was at like 7 o'clock and then sort of five thirty, six o'clock p.m. So you were working during the hours. And I, I guess I was very lucky because here's your KPIs or here's what you need to do for your job or your employment. I don't care how many days you work, it's just as long as you get the work done. So it allowed me really open mindset just to rip in and and get my work done, which you know I was very grateful that I had the employees that would accommodate that and have that approach. But it just made for long days, yeah. You, You were leaving home at six, quarter past six in the morning and not getting home till sometimes eight, nine o'clock at night. And that was pre-season. And then once the season started, it was certainly two to three nights a week. And we had one morning, which was a wait session. I think it was on a Wednesday that we had to attend. So doing it for the period of time I did, it was pretty much the norm. Along with everything else you've achieved in your career, did was football something you always wanted to do? Did you always want to play at an elite level? Yeah, I, I always loved it, Daniel. I, I was hoped that I would 
one day achieve that. So I'm originally from Victoria. I was born in Kew, around Box Hill, and then lived in Werribee. Unfortunately, through a separation of family, we ended up moving to South Australia when I was 11 and played for the local club, Morford Vale, here in South Australia. And then a mate of mine who I went to high school with said, do you want to come down and play football at Glenelg? And that's ultimately how I ended up down at Glenelg. When I was in Werribee, we were we were in the Geelong area. So I, I remember Michael Turner, Ray Bright, Ray Card, a few of the greats of, of Geelong in that era, you know, coming to school and sort of doing coaching clinics. I certainly hoped one day that I, I, I certainly wanted to play league football, yes. So do you consider yourself a South Australian or Victorian? <laughs> Very much South Australian now too. So I'm yeah. look, happy to share. I'm 53, came across when I was 11. I've got still plenty of family, you know, littered throughout Victoria, but majority of my family are now here in South Australia. Ah, good answer. <laughs> yes. uh, so you played for the Glenelg Football Club, obviously, before the Crows come in under Graham Corns. You played with some other future inaugural Crows like Chris McDermott, Matthew Liptag, David Marshall. Back then, what did it actually take to make it onto an SNFL list? Like, how did that process actually work? Yeah, well, the, the process at Glenelg, we were very lucky. So, if you were a league footballer at Glenelg, you actually, majority of the time, had to coach a junior grade. So, we used to have junior grades on the Sunday. So, my coaches growing up were Chris McDermott, Tony McGuinness, Tony Simons, Gavin Walsh, Stephen Kernahan, Peter Maynard. All the sort of the greats they were, and it's great to still talk to them and catch up with them and play with some of them and play against others as well. So the club is a wonderful club and certainly hasn't been as successful as it probably should have. But yeah, you you had zoned areas at that time. Now, I was a little bit out of that area. I was in South Adelaide area and we ultimately moved into the Glenelg area. If a club wanted you, Daniel, at the time, the club had to pay $3,000 for you to transfer in the junior grades to go into that zone. But I ended up there, lucky enough to play 13s, 14s and 15s at Glenelg. Played one game in the under-17s, played about a year and a bit in the under-19s, and then reserves, and then debuted for Glenelg in 1989. I think it was round two versus Port Adelaide, so at Football Park. And then the next year you played in a grand final, so 1990, against Port Adelaide, you lost by 15 points. What are your memories of that particular day? Obviously, before we get into the highlights of 1997, can you explain what the emotion is like to lose a grand final? But to the Magpies, they are a tenacious outfit as the siren sounds. Glenelg have gone down, the Magpies victorious. Port Adelaide 16-12, 108, Glenelg 13-15, 93. You've enjoyed it. You've oh. really loved it, mate. Three in a row, that's tremendous. This is the best ever. It was heart-wrenching, actually, at that time because we were both very good clubs. I mean, John Fitch and Scott Hodges, I think, kicked 138 and 150-odd goals, respectfully. So we were the two better sides in the competition. In 89, we got knocked out, I think, in the elimination final by Norwood. So I played finals then and then into the grand final. And we do look back at it that Port Adelaide were carrying some injuries and copped some injuries on that day and I guess easy to say could have, should have, maybe Daniel we were coming and in the end Port Adelaide were too good so it was really gut-wrenching to not win that one but they were a formidable side back in that day like that Greg Phillips came back and played 
Gavin Wanganeen running around at that particular point to Ben Johnson. They had some ripping players, Port Adelaide. This grand final significant for the fact that it was the last SANFL grand final without the presence of an AFL team in South Australia. People around the mid to late 20s probably don't understand how big the SANFL was before the Crows and Port came in. Could you maybe explain what the SANFL was? It was certainly revered as probably the second best competition outside the VFL then and then into the AFL and probably even still to this day a lot of players that come off the AFL list tend to come back and play in the SANFL with an opportunity to go back to the AFL but yeah I remember in certainly I think it was in 99 we played Port Adelaide at Glenelg Oval and crowds these days are 1500 to two or 3000 but we had 11,000 there for a game at Glenelg Oval and I even think just for memory, Daniel, too, I, I think the SNFL Grand Final, we might have had 50-plus thousand at that 1990 Port Adelaide Glenelg Grand Final, too. So it was huge. The rivalry was great, whether it be Port Adelaide or Nord, Glenelg and Nord, Glenelg and Port Adelaide. The likes of South Adelaide Centrals really did struggle through that particular point. Coming off the mid to late 80s, it was very heavily North Adelaide versus Glenelg too. So there was probably four or five really good quality clubs that were pretty consistent for the 10 years and, and when I started to play. And even then, there, there were some great players that you threw Woodville West Torrens or all West Torrens as they were at the time and Woodville because they hadn't amalgamated at that particular point too. So West Adelaide was struggling a little bit. Sturt were going okay, but Probably, again, Norwood, Port Adelaide and Glenelg were the, probably the real strong clubs at that particular point. It seemed the establishment of the Crows was quite rushed and almost a little disorganised. The club was made official in October 1990 and they played their first official game in March 1991. Around this time, late 90, early 91, you'd been in talks with North Melbourne before finding out about this SA team. How close were you to signing for North Melbourne? I was gone, Daniel. In that time, I got drafted to the Kangaroos at the end of 1989. At that period, you were drafted to that club for a three-year term. Now, you could choose to go or you could stay or you could let that three-year term expire and then you would become, say, free agent, so to speak. Whereas today, you sign an agreement that you get drafted to a club and you're there tomorrow, you're interstate tomorrow, or so you have to go. Whereas I didn't have to go at that time. But after two years of senior footy and two years of finals, and particularly the grand final, we'd won the night grand final as well in 1990 against Woodville. I thought it was time. So the grand final, I think, for memory, was on a Sunday. We sort of caught up with players on a Monday. I actually had lunch with a gentleman by the name of Ed Betro, who owned Rowan Jarman, and he was part of the initial board that was set up, or the interim board, for the Adelaide Footy Club. And he said, hey, the Adelaide Football Club are keen to have a chat. No one knew who they were, other than it was just a name at the time. It was just the Adelaide Footy Club, because they didn't even have colours, they didn't have a nickname. So that was yet to come. I went to Melbourne, which was planned on the Wednesday and the Thursday. There was another gentleman by the name of Justin Storitsky who played for Nord. He was also drafted to the Kangaroos and we'd been talking 
ourselves to say, yeah, we're both going, we'll live together and let's hopefully perform at the Kangaroos. I came back Thursday night. Greg Miller was the football manager, an initial contract to discuss. And I came back in my mind, Daniel, I was gone. I hadn't told the Kangaroos that, but I was ready to go. Friday morning, I was to meet Bob Hammond, Neil Curley, Ed Betro in the Glenelg Football Club boardroom at 10 o'clock, which I did. I walked out of there at 3.30 in the afternoon and I'd signed with the Adelaide Football Club. What a story. Yeah, it was a really tough day. It was a really long day. I was, again, only 20 at the time. I didn't really have a manager either. So it was a, a really tough decision based on that you're pre-law, you'd made your decision and I was committed to go. So I was lucky enough to be one of the 10 concessions that the Adelaide Football Club had. So I was drafted to another club. So they could choose 10 that were drafted to other clubs as part of the inception into the AFL. And that's how I ended up being an Adelaide Football Club player. So what was the reason why you decided to go to Adelaide, not North Melbourne? Was it just to stay home or? Yeah, I think it was a little bit of that. The opportunity to, like, again, it was hearsay, but Graham Corns, who you'd been with, he looks like he might be the coach. You get to stay at home in South Australia. It's exciting. There's multiple players that we're courting and hoping that will come and play for the Adelaide Footy Club, as opposed to absolutely lifting up everything, relocating back to Melbourne, where I, I was nine years earlier, probably in an area I didn't know. But at that time, it was I'd attended the Commonwealth Games in a pre-season camp with the Kangaroos, and you know Wayne Carey at that time hadn't really made his mark. He was contemplating coming back home to South Australia because he was felt that he was struggling. And Anthony Stevens. Anthony Rock, John Longmire, Brett Allison, all these guys were there and I'd spent some time with them. So I actually felt, I actually sort of knew these guys, but the ability to stay in South Australia was a real draw card and it worked out okay. Did you ever think about what may have happened had you taken that position at North Melbourne? You mentioned playing with Wayne Carey and Anthony Stevens and, and John Longmire. Have you, have you ever thought maybe what would have happened if I had stayed at North Melbourne? Yeah, I do reflect on it because the Kangaroos were probably the most successful club during the 90s. That was the Friday night footy. They owned Friday night and they played at the MCG. But they won, I think it was in 96 and 99. We won in 97 and 98. So albeit they were pretty successful in terms of... I think they played finals eight years out of the 10 during that period and won two premierships. Albeit we didn't play that often in the finals, but we played quite a few, you know, 93, 97, 98, we ended up with two premierships at the end. So, I mean, sliding door moments, I've got three daughters, how different that would have been. Would I still be in Victoria? Would I be in South Australia? So it would have certainly been life-changing at the time had I had gone to the Kangaroos. All right, everyone, it's time for a quick break on A5Q. I want to talk about Cappuccino's, the perfect mobile cafe for your event catering needs. Established in 2019 in Adelaide, South Australia, Cappuccino's is our family business, here to provide you with freshly brewed, hot barista-made beverages on wheels, using locally roasted La Crema coffee beans with our preferred blend included for any event needs. Cappuccino's caters for weddings and engagements, sporting events, school, university and work functions 
and birthday parties, just to name a few. We pride ourselves not only on delivering warm, smooth and delicious coffee at a great price, but also fantastic professional customer service with a smile. If our customers walk away satisfied, it means our job has been done correctly. If you're based in Adelaide and need catering for your next social event, contact us directly via phone at 0418 894 570 or email at cappuccinos at hotmail.com. And don't forget to like us on Facebook and help spread the word. Now that we have that out the way, let's get back to the show. That first pre-season leading up to the 1991 season, obviously you had chosen to stay in Adelaide. Now, I believe you started with a massive group of players that one by one were eventually cut down to what became that inaugural Adelaide Crows team in 1991. Did you basically attend every session with it in your head that you could at any time be told your services weren't required? How did that first pre-season work? Well, I was lucky because I had a contract, because I was one of the 10, I actually had a contract in place. So in terms of time, I was there. But I think I'm right in saying, I think it was something like 85 players attended the first few weeks of the Adelaide Football Club's pre-season training. We were given you know, some blue shorts and bright yellow tank tops and turn up. And it was sort of a time, almost every couple of days, they would cull certain players till it sort of got down to a, a number that was like 60 or 65 reasonably quickly that we could sort of start to do more football training together. So the number was huge right at the start. And it was a lot of players. If you probably at the time, it was probably six to ten players from every SNFL club and you might recall and it, it's one I wish he had of come and I understand why he didn't because he's so loyal but Gary McIntosh he was asked several times to come out and play but he just chose didn't want to play AFL and, and stay with Ford. Probably a few players that could have come to the AFL but they wanted to stay in SA it was that loyalty aspect to it which doesn't really exist as much anymore in the AFL or in any sport really. Yeah it's I'm a bit of an old school with this one too and having been on the board for the, of the football club for eight years and I was at footy on the board at Glenelg as well as footy director for six years. It, you listen to the commentary of the players these days and sort of being in the four walls of the Adelaide Football Club and then keeping an eye on what others do. They talk up that they want to be successful, they want to stick around in the club but when it gets to the crunch they tend to taste tenure you know, if you offer them a three-year, they'll take a four or five-year and take the money that goes along with that, not necessarily with a hugely successful club or one that is going to take some time to potentially have that success. So that's my frustration. That's on me. I need to get over that. But, yeah, it's, it's very different now. And we shouldn't be surprised, Daniel, too, through the collective bargaining agreement. The players have asked and chosen to vote and move, which is what they've done. So that's your free agency type scenario. If they have played seven or eight years, they want to have the choice to be able to go to another club if they feel they want it. What would your thoughts be on how you can entice a player to want to stay within your organisation? Or do you feel you shouldn't have to do that? No, you still have to do it. You still have to have the right people. So you've got to have the right coach or right coaches and I guess facilities come into play. I guess the clubs that I admire and have done for quite some time that have been successful and probably the one more recently that probably relates that everyone 
can associate with is Geelong. They've just got this enormous depth at this club. When you look at their players, some of their players have been there for three, four, five years and, and played 20 games. And they don't want to go because the culture there is so good. They're learning with the people. And then when they do get a chance, and you see the, the, the crop that's coming through now, the cohesion amongst them and what they've experienced. And they have a lot of past players engaged and involved at their club too. So it is one club that I certainly look to that I'm aware of a distance that do it really well. I think they're definitely the best in the AFL in that cultural space. I think that's something from an outsider looking in, the Crows fell away from for a few years there. It seems like they're getting that back now because they've got a number of key young players that are signing long-term contracts. Yeah, well, look at the other club too is Richmond. You know, like you've seen them perform so well in recent time and win three premierships. And It's a challenge, Daniel, you know, like this industry is one where you almost have to break it to find out where the group is at. And I think there was so much quality in the Adelaide Football Club and we almost got there in 2017. We had our worst day and that's against all metrics. We had our worst performance in two years on the biggest day and Richmond were just too good. And even partway through the third, as bad as we were playing, I was calling that game for the ABC and I thought, gee, we're so bad at the moment, but we're, we're not that far off. We're only four goals off and 10, 15 minutes into the third quarter. So, and, and you see how quickly football can turn around now. Five or six goals, you only need 10 to 12 minutes and you're back in the game. I was there that day at the MCG and it just felt like something wasn't right sort of halfway through the second quarter. And then it was almost yeah. calm before the storm. And then the, the third quarter... They just ripped the game apart. And it just, like you said, and it's funny the way that you mentioned it, the worst game in two years had to be the biggest stage. And I wonder if that's just coincidence or if the occasion got to them because there's so many different variables. Yeah, it's hard to be definitive with it. But if you probably went through, like Charlie Cameron got hurt early in the game, he got a knock. Then there was a fair bit of pressure. And what Richmond did so well that day, they continually applied pressure. And then they just picked our blokes off and just were really physical with them and really took it to them. And look, it's just the way it is. It's the MCG. It's Richmond's home ground. They had a monster crowd there too, as they always do. So certainly not trying to make any excuses as to why. But look, I've never been involved or never seen certainly a club or our club being Adelaide in 2017, I would go to the games each week, Dan, and go, we won't get beat today. We oh, just, 100%. We yeah. Had, yeah, we had such a quality side, and we could, and albeit we did, but I just, I've never been to a game before, since or prior where you just turn and go, we're flying. You know, our blokes know how to manoeuvre through games, whether they're in front, behind, they're tight, go fast, slow down, really skillful, and we just had quality that would sort of drag the team through and it was a very very good year without getting the ultimate result and i feel like we're slowly getting hopefully back to that level now you see the improvement this year could still make finals next year's got to be the year where they make the finals yeah. for sure and hopefully win a final well yeah I, likewise I, I mean it's I'm, i was bullish with us this year i was hoping they healthy and fit i i, I felt internally either through the football club before I finished up on the board and a little bit in through the radio. We, we should be a, 
five or six to ten team. And that's where we currently stand. You know, we've, we've lost ten games this year. Eight of them are under 26 points. But even four or five of them, Daniel, too, like we should have iced the game by quarter time or half time or GWS game or the Gold Coast game. We were up by six goals. The game should have been done and dusted and go back to the Melbourne game. You know, one goal, nine set shots. We've got it, the ability, it's there, and we're being bullish, but certainly the results have shown. We've taken on Collingwood, lost by 1.2 points, lost to Melbourne by four points. Port Adelaide beat them twice this year. The Western Bulldogs one was probably our worst game for the year this year in Ballarat, which we called, went down by 40-odd points in that game. So the Giants up by six in round one and should have just put them away but weren't able to. So it, the signs are there, and I think Matthew Nix is a really good contemporary coach, and respectfully, I think the club's got probably the best coaching group with great experience from other clubs, and we've got some great talent in the club right now. I mean, you could maybe argue the early Brenton Sanderson days, possibly, but I think this is the only real true rebuild the Crows have had in history where we've gone, we're going to bottom out for a couple of years and go again. The first time they've really started from the ground up. Yeah, it is. And it certainly, it was almost sort of got to that point with, I guess, 2018, 2019 and 20. And when Nixie took over, COVID and everyone had to deal with it. But there was just such a challenge for a new coach to come in and deal with what he had to do. Hardly knew anyone and groups couldn't train together. So it was just challenging. It really was. I mean, Don Pike did an amazing job. Scott Camparelli, these guys that were there, certainly after 2015 with the passing of Phil Walsh, like I'd certainly challenge any other club on the land. Stuff happened at our club that just has never happened before. And our guys had to contend with that off field. And that's where I go back. It wasn't just on field. I think there was multiple challenges they faced. And in the end, it was just really, really difficult for them. And in the end, they but probably it just broke and we had to start again. And this ties into sort of your early days at the Crows. If a new club enters the AFL now, so say Tasmania, for example, or even back in the day with GWS and Gold Coast, those first few years, you know you're going to struggle. You're not going to win many games and you've got all these young guys. Back in your day, take the Crows 1991, for example, you were expected to be competitive from day one. And the Crows' first game, they beat Hawthorne, who ended up winning the Premiership by 86 points. How did you guys have such a successful season first up when you hadn't played together as a as a combined club? I think we'd spent so much time together, but it was quality. Again, the, when you reflect on the genuine state games that were played, South Australia played Victoria on a Tuesday night at Football Park and we just had quality sides and it was a different style of football. I think Adelaide was real quick by foot but also by hand and I think that certainly was to our advantage against the number of the Victorian teams and David Marshall had a, an incredible first year. Som Jagenda played well, Romano Negri, Tom Warhurst, Danny Hughes came back and played, Rodney Maynard was great and then we had the guys that had played a bit of football previously at VFL or AFL that came back and played as well. And Chris McDermott was the captain. Nigel Smart was All-Australian in our first year. We had some quality players. And I potentially, I have a bit of philosophy around it, is that there's a lot of people that could probably play at the next level, at AFL level, Daniel too, that 
either are playing locally or amateurs or whatever, but they're just happy to have a beer with their mate and just play football. But if you actually put them in an environment and trained them accordingly and they had the desire and will to do it, well, they're probably better players at that level. Yeah, that's so true. Because some people just content yeah. just to do their job and go home. Yep. And that's a great analogy too. You know, like it's, it's work. You, know, you just turn up and do your work and go. But if you actually put a bit of time and effort into it, probably go okay. And I, I, if I may indulge for a little bit, my daughter, you know, like she's my middle daughter's almost 15 and she got frustrated playing netball at school. We just said, well, why don't you join a club and actually train and do some work? And she's doing really well for one of the local netball clubs here in South Australia. So it's as easy as that. Just put your mind to it, have a crack. And when you put yourself into an environment, you put your mind to it, and you're around with people that push you and your peers, it will make you better. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes you underestimate your own ability. You're actually better Mm. than what you think you are. You've just got to break it. How far can I go? I didn't think I could do that. Let's try and push you a little bit too. So some people have the, the strength of mind to do it mentally and physically themselves. Others need to be in a group and certainly being in a group of people that want the same outcome. It's a great environment to be in. The Crows' first game, round one, 1991 against Hawthorne, as, as I mentioned before, they won the premiership that year, but you end up destroying them by 86 points. What are your memories of that first ever game? And, and you mentioned before, can achieve something if you really put your mind to it. Did you guys come into that round one game thinking that you could upset Hawthorne? A credit to the public of South Australia. They've given the Crows full support. And here they go to open the season, to open their AFL career. And it's Negri who gets a mighty thump down towards the half-forward line. The Crows through Pregenza, the centre-half forward. The Crows have really done everything right tonight. I, I haven't found a cheat in the side as the siren goes. Lidner will want to finish it off. He shoots towards goal. Oh, he finishes it off all right. A marvellous victory for the Adelaide Crows. Bruce Lidner finishes the night with four goals. And an 86-point win to the Adelaide Crows in their AFL home and away debut. One more standing ovation for these 20 players. We thought we'd be okay, but I don't know if we knew exactly how we would go. I think there was a trial game a few weeks prior. We played Essendon, and, and Football Park was really full of the people that turned up to watch. But I was a Hawthorne supporter growing up, so I ended up ultimately playing against a lot of the guys I had admired from a distance. You know, you asked me earlier around wanting to play football, and I remember coming on after Chris McDermott got Malachi Crunch, really, or the hip and shoulder between Dermot Brennan and Paul Deere. So I came on after that and I tackled John Kennedy. I almost wanted to apologise and lift him back up, you know, <laughs> like, and that's when I, so I got my first kick. So I was playing against these guys that I admired and hopefully one day. But yeah, to think that we actually did so well against them, Darren Jarm was playing, John Platten was playing. They were a quality side and ultimately went on to, to win the grand final. So. Long-winded, but I, I don't know, Daniel. Like I, I thought we'd be okay. And that was sort of what we all hoped, but to win in the manner in which we did, yeah, I don't think we expected that. Keeping it on 1991, a couple of highlight moments. Round 12 against Fitzroy. Now, I know you probably get asked about this one a lot. A hard slog in wet conditions. A couple of dubious calls go your way late in the game. Paul Ruse gives away a free kick, and you find yourself 
having a shot after the siren to win the game. Now, I know Eddie Hocking tried to take the kick, but it was your kick, and you went back and you nailed it. What's it like to score a goal after the siren to win a game? 30 seconds remaining. Jarman, he's got to go long. Why What's he going? going out there? He's gone to Paul Ruth, who couldn't take the mark. But Ruse tries to bottle it up. Now, Precious seconds to hold it. Oh, 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 this is murder. Absolute oh. murder. Jamison is going to take the ball. He's if, kicked two goals. If they win this game, it's been pitched. Absolutely stolen. This is going to be the last kick. Well, watch this. Watch this on replay. He's tried to make an effort. But Jamison oh, is... I tell you what. Might have been for throw. They've got the best guy having the kick. He is a great kick. Is he going the torpedo punt? The siren has gone. The siren has gone. This kick, if it's a goal, will win the match for the Crows from 47 metres. Will make the distance. Oh, he's kicked it. They stole it. It's a goal. Absolute murder. Absolute murder. Unbelievable finish. Well, the Crows supporters are absolutely jubilant. Yeah, it was crazy. It was the 9th of June, 1991, too. And the reason I know that, my birthday's on the 30th of June. It was a Saturday night. It was the only time we thought, let's just get some people together on that particular night. So it resonates. And I remember it vividly. I guess at the time, being young, I actually didn't feel, I don't think, the pressure of, I must kick this at the time. Had I been mid-twenties or a bit older, you know, when you're a little bit more mature, possibly, but because it's such a long time ago now, I, I felt comfortable in my ability to kick a football. So, yeah, it was just one to get it to go back. And, and look, you're probably right. Like, you look at the, I guess, the freeze that were given, it could have gone. And at that time, I thought Eddie was going to take it, but the umpire said, no, it was me. So, yeah, we were very lucky. A lot of people still talk about it and come up to me and say, look, I was there that night or I went home that night because it was so cold and wet. But no, it was an incredible memory that lives with me. I had 80 people to turn up at the Glenelg Cricket Club for my 21st. I had 240 Daniel turn up and, and six of the Fitzroy players turned up as well. So, so was your, because um, you just mentioned it before, was that actually your 21st birthday on that night? Yeah, it was that night. What a way to celebrate. It was. It was crazy. It was a fun night. And I did look at this number some time ago, but there's a fair bit that happened. I think there's only like maybe 45 players that have played AFL that have kicked a goal after the siren. There's a few that have kicked points to win games after the siren. So, yeah, there's a, a select group. And only two Crows players, yourself and Jordan Dawson. Yeah. How good was that kick? How did you actually kick it? Because a heavy wet ball from 50 metres after the siren, that is, it's a very hard kick. I mean, kicking a waterlogged ball is hard any time, but after the siren from that far out, it's a very impressive kick. Yeah, no, thank you. It was, again, I sort of felt comfortable that I could kick both feet probably that distance. And then if I have to sort of pinpoint someone, I really sort of did a lot of work on my kicking throughout my time at Glenelg and Adelaide. So I certainly felt comfortable kicking with it, but yeah, to definitively talk you through, I just I just really went back and I ultimately, I think it was, I heard maybe Peter Motley, I was a, a Sturt supporter, but I ended up at Glenelg as a junior, but I remember just kick the kick, just kick the kick. It was never really much more than that, just kick the kick and don't put too much pressure. So I just went back and kicked the kick and yeah, just it was nice to lace it. 
49 goals in 1991, including two bags of four, one of five, and one of six. Then a massive eight-goal haul against, ironically, North Melbourne in the final game of the season. You are the first ever Adelaide Crows leading goal kicker. Surely that's something you look at with a, a strong sense of pride. I do. And look, I was a little bit lucky too, because I think Scott Hodges, he had an injury and he missed part of the year as well. So I spent more time up forward than he did. And look, I was pretty lucky. Had a couple of good days. And then on that last day, I remember the late, great Bob Hammond, our chairman at the time, came into training prior to that game. And he had a big, booming voice. And he really put it on us that, look, this is so important, this game against the Kangaroos, you know, certainly for commercially marketing after finish off strong in the first year so we could go again into the second year. And his big booming voice just went straight through you. And we had a pretty good day. So, yeah, I kicked, was it eight goal five, I think, that day too. So I was hoping to get to 50, but had a reasonable day. So And we had a good win. But you know, one thing I can't wrap my head around, and I, I imagine you're aware of this, you had 20 possessions, you kicked eight goals, and absolutely no Brownlow medal votes for that game. Surely, surely you're stiff there. I would have thought. Who, do you know who got the votes that particular day? I, don't, I couldn't remember either, so maybe it's something I'll have a look at. Sean Wren got the three votes, Wayne Wiedemann got two, and Rodney Maynard got one. Yeah, okay. Yeah, look, Rennie was a great player, wasn't he too? And, and Weed had his moments. And Rodney Maynard was just a freak. Played for Norwood, came to Adelaide. He dropped nearly 15 kilos, turned into a running machine and took some great defensive roles, but was just that player that really started to run from behind. And yeah, but all three are tremendous blokes. None of them kicked eight goals on that game, though. Yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> I think I can't recall the one was that Greg Williams had a monster day too where he had like 40 possessions one day and he needed three votes to win the Brownlow and he didn't even get one vote. Well that's uh, similar yeah. to Andrew McLeod I think it was 2001 when he had 40 possessions or something against Frio in the last game didn't get a vote and he missed out to Ackermanis. Yeah it's uh, I don't know how it lands in it too and I, I think back then and even I'm not quite sure that the umpires do it necessarily now they don't look too much at the stats they try and make the decision between the four of them without any stats or details in front of where a lot of the umpires had the ability to go back and look at that back in the day. Yeah, fair enough. I still I still think you could have at yeah. least got one Brownlow medal vote, <laughs> oh, I would have thought. <laughs> but No, no, thank you. A couple of years later, so 1993 is one that still to this day is fondly remembered by a lot of Crow supporters. You make the finals in just your third season in the competition. There's the famous Collingwood game, the last game of the home and away season. And then, arguably even more famous, that first ever final at the MCG against Hawthorne. Now, the 1993 preliminary final. Now, I know you didn't play in this game, but the club was 42 points up at halftime and Essendon obviously come back to win. Do you think that loss actually impacted the playing group and was a part of the reason why they weren't the same in the following years? So, 1994, you finished 11th and then obviously Cornsey left the club. Do you actually think that that preliminary final was one of the reasons? Very important possession. Watson's got it. Watson goes for goal. Essendon are home in the preliminary final thanks to a goal kicked by Timmy Watson. Graham Corn shakes his head in disbelief. 
and next week will be playing Carlton. It's been one of the most remarkable games in the long history of this great game. To be seven goals behind at half-time. That's it. Difficult to say it was, but it was monster opportunity that we let slip at that particular time. And the greatest respect, we played Hawthorne won that game and Jason Dunstall sat on me and broke my ribs in that game. So Graham Corns made it very clear to me that I wasn't going to play unless I didn't have any assistance from the doctor. So I ended up missing the game at Waverley against Carlton and then we the same thing happened again against Eston and so I'm still it's a bit of a sore point because I could have played with a bit of assistance. And I think, this is where I say respectfully, I, I felt that if whoever played Carlton in the grand final was going to win. So it's, look, it's one that continually comes up to be that far up and to let it slip. Andrew Jarman, who's arguably one of the talented and greatest kicks that's ever been produced out of South Australia, missed an absolute sitter from 15 metres out as yeah. well, the pressure. So I, I'm not really sure, but it's certainly had an enormous impact on us, didn't it? To your point, highlighting the following year. Say if we had won that game, got through to the grand final, would you have been a chance to play against Carlton in the grand final? Absolutely would have. Like So I sort of had this philosophy, Daniel, too, and eyes, brain and heart. If it's anything wrong with that, then you step down. But anything else, you just go and get some help from the doctor and get yourself through and do what you need to do because you can fix it up at the end of the year. So... Most times I had an operation at the end of each year. and Yeah, I, I absolutely would have put my hand up to play, for sure. I know it's coulda, woulda, shoulda, but you can't help but think, had Adelaide even just made the grand final, how big that would have been. Third season in the competition, you, know, you think about Graham Corns and what his name would be in AFL folklore now, and, and just the Crows in general, to achieve that would be incredible. Would have been insane, wouldn't it? So... Yeah, it's far out how things go. 94, we struggled. Graham went, and then 95, 96, Robert Shaw turns up and started well, but then sort of fell away. And then, yeah, some massive changes at the football club, and then Malcolm Blight turns up, and, and it rolls the way it did. What were we, one and three in 97? We got rolled by Port Adelaide in the, in the first showdown, and... That's when Malcolm just put on the board. He wrote number 18 and just said, look, we've got 18 games to go. It's just it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And that's where that sort of came from. And, and then away we went. And yeah, look how it landed. Halftime break here on Amato's fifth quarter podcast. And I'd just like to take a moment to thank everyone who has tuned into the show. The support is very much appreciated. And I hope this episode is finding you well. If you're enjoying the show, it would be a massive help if you could consider subscribing and leaving a rating and a review. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps feed the podcast algorithm and boost the show's visibility, which will therefore allow for other Australian sports tragics to see and listen to the show. Five stars, of course, would be fantastic, but I'll leave that up to you. Now, enough of that. Let's get back into it because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. Just going back to the Robert Shaw era, that's something that well, I've always found very interesting. At the time, 
Adelaide believed they needed a Victorian influence, and that's why Robert Shaw was appointed. It was very unsuccessful in terms of the on-field performance, and off the field it seemed like there were a few issues. If I may ask, what was your relationship like with Robert Shaw, and how did you see him as a coach during his short time at Adelaide? So I think when talking to Bill Sanders, well, in the last 23 years, we sort of had the ability to have a glass of red or a beer and just say, and he, they seriously felt they needed a, someone a bit hardened that had spent some time in the VFL or AFL system at the time. And it just came completely out of left field when he was appointed. Every, I think it just took everyone by surprise that this is Robert Shaw. Greg Anderson at that stage was back from Essendon playing at Adelaide and we're still very close friends and we spent a bit of time and he thought well this will be interesting I think and he tried to spend some time personally with him and sure he wanted to keep that sort of arm's length tactically and understanding the game I think I don't think there's probably too many better people say again I was only reasonably young I wasn't in the leadership group so I didn't really see it but from a personal perspective, if you talk about a, a Ken Hinckley now or a, a Matthew Nix and the relationship those coaches or they have with their players, it's just tight and unique. And whereas back then it was sort of a bit harder. So that, that was probably, and when things sort of didn't start to go well, yeah, they really went off the rails. And I think Robert Shaw would look back on his time and say when they started to go poorly, he brought a fair bit on that himself. He, he sort of blamed being South Australian people and media and what have you. That, wow, uh, really? Assisting. Yeah. I, I think Shaw, he would probably certainly say that. He didn't help himself towards the end of that time. And I ask this respectfully, it was obviously the right call for him to be moved on, essentially. Yeah, well, look, I think I'm right in saying the pressure... The supporters, I, I, I think he got his house egged at one point, and I think his children were under a fair bit of pressure at school too. It, it, the heightened awareness, and it's a genuine issue, Daniel. You'd certainly hear across the number of years now that Adelaide's a fishbowl. Certainly Victorian supporters, and I know Western Australian, probably a less degree Sydney and Brisbane, but just here, the heightened magnification of supporters, members, followers, barrackers that follow the club. Some people, unfortunately, just take it a little bit too far. And in the end, I think Robert Shaw was happy to get out of South Australia and get back to Victoria. But that's that's not fair for his kids to cop it at school and stuff like that. If you have your house egged, that's terrible. Yeah, so it was a little bit like that. But it's a genuine concern, be it Adelaide being able to acquire Jordan Dawson, Isaac Rankin, you get a lot of players and that's it, probably the other reason too like if, if you say look at it this way that Tony Lockett went from Melbourne to Sydney and Buddy Franklin was saying they just want the anonymity you walk around in Sydney and no one knows who you are they certainly do that in Victoria but in South Australia it is uniquely different and certainly Don Pike felt exactly the same way coming from Western Australia and knowing how passionate they are over there but coming here to South Australia and now is in Sydney yeah it's, it's really really difficult to acquire good people to come to your football club because the heightened magnification of media particularly and also just the supporter groups which is great to have but it can be challenging sometimes 
at the end of 96, when Robert Shaw was able to, to get out of that situation, Malcolm Blight came in. Obviously, he was a super player and he had coached Geelong to three grand finals. When he came in, what was the overall vibe around the club? And what are your memories of that time? When he first got appointed, I was certainly aware, well, you'd recall that uh, Chris McDermott, Tony McGuinness and Andrew Jarman all left the club. Yeah. Malcolm moved those three on. So that was a real wow moment. I guess as Neil Craig came to the club at that particular point too. So we were going, well, he with his background at the pre-season was probably as big a pre-season that we ever had. You may recall or heard a little bit about him. We used to do five 1K time trials and it was an introduction into our club. We didn't know how they were, so you had to run. So he just said, right, go and run and see how you go. And blokes would go out, go hard. Second one, go okay. Third one, either blow up. Fourth one, blow up and maybe limp home in the last. But the ultimate outcome was you wanted to do five and maintain your commitment. So if you ran it at a certain time, and we did this for all the pre-season. Plus, you know, we'd ultimately run 10Ks and then that introduced the football. So we were super fit. And you may recall too, and that's ultimately why Mark Rusciuto, he got absolutely smashed through the fitness side of things. We didn't have the, I guess, the technical knowledge as we do today or the monitoring that we do today to, you know, workloads and things on it. Rui just blew up. And he had two groin operations towards the end of the year. He just he couldn't make, he couldn't even go a yard. So he was unable to play deep and into the finals in '97. So Blighty kept it simple, and our back line. If I talk where I was playing, if Malcolm didn't have a matchup for us, he would just say, "Right, you both go out and match up on who you feel you match up on best." And if I don't like it, I'll send the runner out and I'll make a change. So the autonomy to do what we did, we really sort of started that run and rebound. We feel probably from behind. We had Shane Allen, Ben Hart, Nigel Smart, Tyson Edwards, Andrew McLeod, David Pittman, Peter Caven, myself. The run and rebound that we were able to generate from behind the football, I think certainly had great advantage. And going deep into the finals, we were like able to show how fit we were to maintain and in at tight times be able to get across the line. When he first came in, obviously you mentioned the sackings of, of McDermott, McGuinness and Jarman. At that time, could you ever foresee the success that was to come? You had missed the finals three years in a row. You you weren't really going anywhere as a football club. And you come from nowhere to win two premierships. Could you ever foresee that success, let's say, when he first got the job in, in late 1996? No, I, I guess you in your wildest dreams, you wouldn't have thought that's what would have taken place. We knew he was a quality coach because he'd obviously certainly got Geelong to three or four grand finals previously and just hadn't been able to get across the line on the biggest day. So we certainly knew what a quality coach he was. We certainly all liked his ability to keep things simple and he had some unique mannerisms and we sort of look back and we all have a bit of a giggle at ourselves, but he was certainly probably my best coach that I had through my time and the results sort of reflected that for, for pretty much most of us, albeit, you know, when you have a look at some individual moments throughout those two years and the demands on certain players and how certain players were called out, it was a, it was a tough and challenging time as well. 
One very poignant moment in Crows history was early 1997. Round four, it was the first ever showdown against arch rivals Port Adelaide, and, and you mentioned it a few minutes ago. So the Crows lost that game, and, and besides the result, it's remembered for the famous stoush between yourself and Scott Cummings. Now, I understand there was a little bit of lip going on, a bit of chatter. Brennan Laid was involved. Can you give us insight onto what happened? Because it's funny now, but I would imagine at the time it wasn't funny. Tight situation. And we've got a box eye. Oh, oh yeah. Fair dictum one, too. Few oh. haymakers thrown off oh, the ball. Winter. Oh. By Smart. They're still fighting down there. Cummings and Jamison. It's a main event. Got there late. Take our word for it. Meanwhile, at the other end, Madra's got the footy. Well, I reckon there was 20 punches thrown there. Don't be a passion stout. Didn't see a thing. Don't recall the incident. Well, that's what you say when you get to the tribunal, isn't it, Lee? We're a long way away. We're 100 metres away, Peter, but I think you saw it fairly well. It was a boxing match. Look at this. Unbelievable. Well, Jamison working in close. Cummings working inside his jumper. (laughs) Well, what happened was Jason McCartney was playing for Adelaide and he'd been at Collingwood. And then you had Scott Cummings, who was playing at Port Adelaide, and he'd been at Essendon. So prior to that year, when both players came to that club, they had already had some sort of history with each other at other clubs. So I was standing Scott Cummings in the square, and I was never one to concern myself. If players wanted to yap, I never really got involved in that too much at all. And he was yelling out to Jason McCartney quite regularly, and Carts was biting back, and so Brendan Laid was standing him, and somehow they've sort of come together. They've walked towards each other, come together, and pushed and pushed. And then Scott Cummings just grabbed him by the throat. And for me at that time, I felt, Daniel, that here's a bloke that has been at Port Adelaide for two minutes who thinks he's going okay. And I just went, oh, I'm not going to allow this. <laughs> so that's sort of how it all started. And then it sort of almost died down, and then he threw a punch at me again and then it sort of started up and that's what you see on the footage I must admit look I I think the result itself we were a little bit overwhelmed I think we obviously from Adelaide's perspective it got the better us on the day I was surprised at probably my reaction and what I did but I look back now I wish I had got him a few more times <laughs> but it's uh, <laughs> Yeah, so that was the history and that's sort of how it, that's really how it started. And the irony of that is Scott Cummings and I were doing radio with Tony Pilkington and Barry and every Friday on a weekly basis of the footy season two. And yeah, so it was an interesting year. It's all a part of the showdown. Easily the best rivalry in the AFL. It certainly is too, you know. Like I, I think when you have a look at it, I, I think the derbies over in Perth, you know, they certainly early, they were fiery. And once they got going, but they're probably not as what they used to be. We just saw the GWS and the Sydney one on the weekend. I mean, there's a bit of spite in that. That's that's a genuine yeah. robbery. It was a bit manufactured, but now that I think that's genuine. I still feel the Q clash is a little bit forced. Yeah, I think you know if all goes to plan or what's been supposedly played out in the media that. Damien Harwick might be offered a roll up there, and in the event that he takes it, I mean, he'll be a a real flagship. That might then start to become like players will want to go there, you know, where they get the right people around. And if certain players go, you might see the Gold Coast sort of start to improve in time. But I guess time will tell. To lose the first showdown to baby brothers per se, do you believe that result 
potentially was the beginning of what became the Premiership because there is the famous story, and you mentioned it before, when Blighty wrote 18 on the board. Do you think that was the loss you needed to have? So history, great build-up all week, and the record book will show Port Power have won the first showdown in Adelaide. And there is no more time. Wait for it. necessarily, but it was one, because I think, I'm just trying to think, I think we lost a game or two prior to that as well, so I think once we'd lost the showdown, I think we were like 1-1, lost 3 at that stage, so it wasn't looking all that bright for us too, so, but after that particular moment, we, we sort of got it all together and, and started to go on and, and play some reasonable football and I think the one thing Malcolm provided all of us were again just the the ease and the simplicity of how we go about it we changed our game plan slightly every four to five weeks so we weren't doing the same thing over and over the introduction of some certain players um, we played some players in certain roles like i i'd go forward for a bit shane allen would go forward for a bit cave went forward nigel went forward and back we had the ability to throw a couple of blokes around so we just always weren't playing the same way and at that time, I mean, Simon Goodwin was coming through, Kane Johnson was coming through, Peter Vardy was a great player, albeit didn't play in that one, Chattering Tool, and let's be fair too, Daniel, I mean, we had Tony Modra up forward, he was always a real handful for a lot, and Mark Rusciuto was probably as fit as he's ever been. We had some quality players. Yeah, we just sort of won each week and went about doing our job. I, I, there was, I can't recall anything sort of standing out that we just went, well, other than probably the showdown loss where we just got to change the way of what we're doing and we went about doing it. We ended up doing like a massive block of running once again with about three or four weeks to go in the season. So it was almost like a mini pre-season again. And we'd never been through that before, but Neil Craig certainly wanted to put us through that. And I think that put us in good stead again running into just the mindset of knowing that whatever the season, the remaining of the season and the the chance at finals throws at us, we'll be able to get through it. We're going to be super fit. So we'll certainly be okay. Don't, don't sort of recall anything particular towards the back end of the season as to, to why things sort of worked out for us. How about the 1997 preliminary final? So you were 22 points down at three-quarter time, I believe. And you come storming back. How did you guys manage to just get over the line? It's looking like the Crows. They lead by two points. What a turn-up after a 31-point margin at halftime. Crows were goalless in the first term. Bulldogs have been goalless in the last. Scott West again. It drops short. Edwards gets back there. The hand pass away. Jamison. Simon. There's been so much written and so much said. But the reality is the dogs have missed out. Malcolm Blight and his men are through. Yeah, well, I think that part of that mindset too, like, albeit for memory in that game, I started forward. I think I kicked maybe the first two of the game 
Nigel's back and he stood James Cook, who was ex-Carlton and Western Bulldogs, and he sort of got the better of him. So I think it was in the second quarter, Blighty threw me back onto him. Nigel then went up forward. Troy Bomb was there. And we just dug in. Kane Johnson, I think out of all the finals in that year, albeit, you know, in the second week, I think in the semi-final against Geelong, got a bit tight too at Football Park. I think Lee Colbert might have, there was a mark that wasn't paid deep in the game. We just ran over the top. That's how we felt at the time. We just ran over the top of them. But I think out of the, the four weeks, Daniel, if you get a chance to even look at that game, I think that's probably the best game of our finals campaign, albeit the grand final result is obviously what everyone's chasing. You had that final kick on your left foot out of the defensive 50 toward the boundary line just as the siren went. Do you remember the moment the siren went and you knew we, we've done it, we're in a grand final? Yeah, because I, I think we all ran into sort of the centre-half forward area in the square and Tyson Edwards, Benny Hart, Shane Allen, we were super excited, but it sort of really quickly went to, right, great job, but there's still a fair bit of work to do, so just have a look around and we know we're going to enjoy the week of what it was but you know the realisation that we were actually there it's certainly for me it didn't sink in until when you're sitting in the change room after the game you know after we've defeated St Kilda and having a beer in the room with your teammates and coaches and just going wow what just happened and you'll certainly find a lot of players now well, you, you listen to them after a game when they get interviewed. It's almost a bit of a relief, Daniel, that the game is over because the pressure and the tension is there. And I can share a special moment. Like we went back to the, I think it was the tennis centre. David Hooks, the late great David Hooks, he was an MC there. He interviewed all the players. We came up. We then went to the casino where we had the big club dinner, and I was walking out with Ben Hart, Tyson Edwards just about to walk up these escalators to go into the building and a gentleman puts his arm on my shoulder and goes, congratulations, I know how you feel. Wayne Harms, you know, the, oh, one wow. of the greatest, number 37 from Carlton. Yeah. He didn't have to do that, but he did. And then the next five or six weeks, it was just tremendous to be able just to sit back and just reflect on what we'd accomplished. And to your point, in our wildest dreams, we, we never thought, I mean, we all aspire to do that at the start of the season to to win a grand final or whatever sport you play to be the best and finish top at the end of the year but wow it was a wonderful year and a wonderful five or six weeks after the grand final that's an amazing story can you explain the feeling of when you're down in the rooms before the game and when you come up the race grand final day and you you run through the banner hundred thousand people it was incredibly loud it was so hard to hear I, I was one. I used to sort of run out of the back of the group. I never used to run through the banner, not for any superstitious reasons. I just remember many people going through and there was tape and used to get cut or it was too strong. And yeah, it was late in the, the first quarter and I actually injured my hamstring. And I was trying to yell out, just even blokes that was to Nigel and others that were really close, get back. And it just took so many minutes for anyone to even just hear what was going on because it was just deafening. So humbly and lucky enough to be there on the day, I, I look back and wish I had have 
given a greater contribution on the day itself, but it was just deafening, deafening loud. So I guess where it falls back to being able to spend time together, the cohesion, to know where your teammates run, where they'll be, just being in the right spot when you find yourself you get in a fair bit of trouble. And certainly that's one of the many days, if you're lucky enough to get there, that's when it comes into play. And you mentioned you tore your hamstring. Did did that sour the victory at all, not playing a major part? Or is a premiership a premiership, basically? Yeah, I think at the time, a premiership is a premiership. After a couple of days of sort of celebrating, I ended up going to Brian Sander, who also is no longer with us, but he was a great club doctor for many, many years, an Olympic doctor. Yeah, we had a scan done, and it was... I actually didn't tear the muscle. The muscle had pulled my sitting bone away where it had connected. So it was like a stress fracture. So it took pretty much majority of the 98 pre-season to heal. And that was really difficult. I think probably a more recent time, maybe 10, 15 years ago, I think Matthew Lloyd may have had an operation where they actually reattached his muscle to the tendon or the bone. I had a similar injury. So 98 ended up having a pre-season game we played Sydney up in Sydney at some tiny oval in the middle of nowhere we got a charter flight there and I was standing Tony Lockett in my first game back just prior to the start of the season and he got asked to come off and sure enough I I was in front of him took a tackle and he drove me to the ground and busted my collarbone so I was out for another five or six weeks so my pre-season for 98 and into 98 wasn't all that flash. Do you ever think to yourself yeah, it sucks that I'm injured or, you know, I haven't got the best start, but I still won a premiership. Is there that element of just being content? No, I think at the time, you don't quickly forget it, but you move on quickly. And again, it's it's just how the games and you'll hear coaches, players talk about it. You've got a 24-hour type rule, enjoy it, celebrate it. But you've got to quickly move your mindset on to the next game. I guess at the time, by that stage, I was just keen to get back and play after sort of a slow, I did a lot of running and I had to do it with some balance because of my hamstring. But yeah, the infuriation of getting injured, certainly to a part of your body where you want to be strong and be able to handle it. I had an arm and a sling for three or four weeks, I think it was, at that particular point too. So, so I hope that's answered your question. You probably don't think too much about the premiership. You're actually all of a sudden looking ahead because you want to be part of a team and you want to be playing again. Can you explain the feeling when the final siren sounds in a grand final and you, you've you won the ultimate prize in sport and you, you know that you're going to be forever known as a premiership player? What is that emotion like? What a fairy tale ending for the Adelaide Crows. If they need it anymore, they've done a lot in the last quarter. So there's nothing left now but to celebrate.
Yeah, look, it was euphoric. It is. I, I think the challenge of it is actually appreciating what you've accomplished. You look over games that teams have won and the game's probably been put away either early in the last quarter or even the sizable margin where you can sit back for a quarter and actually enjoy it. It happened pretty quick, but towards the end, Darren Jarman was just electrifying. Troy Bond, Nigel Smart, probably the last six minutes, eight minutes, you sort of go, I think we've got this, you know? Like, so it wasn't until late in that particular quarter that I felt like, hey, we're going to win this. And then, wow, it is, it's an enormous relief, but there's a, an incredible sense of accomplishment. And then the following days and weeks where you can just sit back and go, how good was that? And when you look back at the body of work that had been done across the 25, 26 weeks in the home in a way, but then you go back another two or three months of training, three mornings a week, three nights a week, then happen to maintain and get through it. It's the reflection of looking back, I guess, at the time. And now being out of it sort of 23 years, I look back and go, how, how lucky that is. Seems like such a long time, but we, we're still some good friends and relationships from it. So the next year, the club repeats the effort. They win back-to-back premierships, beating North Melbourne. But unfortunately, you missed out. Do you feel like you're a part of it when you don't play in the actual game? Do you feel a part of that success? The Crows are home. It's ticking away. We've done what we thought was impossible. They've been to Perth, to Melbourne, to Sydney, to Melbourne, and they've come back. And they've got it. They are a super football team. No question. It's endorsed its fate today. Again, what happened in that year was, if you remember, we went up to Sydney. Well, if you, you go back to the, the, was it the, I'm trying to think what final it was, where Adelaide played Melbourne at the MCG, and Melbourne belted Adelaide by 80-odd points, I think it was at the time. It was a different mix with the eight, but it was. So I played at Glenelg on the Sunday, which was, the, I think, the same day. Melbourne beat Adelaide and this is how long ago I was actually standing Matthew Pavlich that day he was playing for Woodville West Highlands at Glenelg Oval turned out being a right player yeah did he what and then um, so from there we turned up at Monday night training and that's the night that Tony Modra left our club we went out on the training track and Malcolm Blight he belted us. He absolutely belted us. We did so much running. And right at the end of that session, Daniel, I, I went, oh, gosh, I think I've done something to my calf. And at the time, I, I just thought I'd nicked it a bit. It just felt, sure enough, I woke up Tuesday morning and it was a little bit tight. So I saw the doctor that day 
I got there Wednesday night and Malcolm Blight said, you're back in the side, we're playing Sydney and you're tagging Dale Lewis, you're in the middle. So at that particular time, I thought, well, if we lose, we're out. I can deal with it. If we win, we'll keep going and I'll deal with it then. So we didn't do any running again on Friday night in Sydney. And then I saw Brian Sando, sought some help from him. So I had two injections in my calf. So I was obviously going to make it worse because of the nature of the injury. But you might recall that night, I absolutely bucketed down with rain. So that assisted me as well. Peter Vardy had a good night out. I actually did quite well that night. So, but after the game, I had another one at, at halftime and then I couldn't walk after the game. So I ended up missing the prelim final against the Western Bulldogs again that year and then trained to be picked. And I was told that I was in, but I just nicked my calf again and I asked Brian to give me some injections. And off the back of the previous year where I did my hammy late in the first quarter and then where my calf was, Brian just said that the area is too big. It's, it's going to be too difficult to to do what we need to do. So I missed out. Like So to be a part of it in 97, incredible. Missed it in 98. The one thing I probably do reflect on with heartfelt sincerity is you know, the guys that did, there was Mark Rusciuto, Matthew Littak, Jason McCartney, Trent Norman Allen, Tony Modra, the guys that were significant in 97, getting us to where we were, weren't a part of 97. They just allowed us, the team itself, not the entire group. And I found it difficult to engage myself during the celebration throughout that time. So that's just, I think most sports people would, probably struggle with that and I just couldn't get my head around it and I was just so disappointed to miss out but so grateful that we were able to win another one. Three players in particular for mine and that's Tony Modra, Matthew Liptak and Simon Jugenza that missed both the premierships. Yeah, Peter Vardy missed the first one as well. For memory, I think Trenton Allen might have played 18 games or 19 games. Yeah, I missed him, sorry. He, he missed 97 and 98 yeah. as well. So there's the four of them that, that yeah. missed both the premierships. Jason McCartney, 97. I mean, then you look at that. And Aaron Keating played four games, ends up playing in a in a premiership. So, you look, Brett James was another player that came back from Collingwood. He was a great at Norwood. And he was so good in and under for Adelaide in both years. And Cavo, we talk a lot about the job he did. North Melbourne kicked so poorly in 98, but geez, they were a quality side too. So I think it just sort of gets back again, Daniel. We just hung in there. We just knew that we had to. We we never really dropped our heads when things went against us or the the momentum in the game was either in 97 St Kilda's way or the Western Bulldogs in the prelim in 97 or the Kangaroos were all over us in the first half in 98. But yet, we come out in the second half and, and do what we do. And of course, we had Darren Jarman in both years, so that made a significant difference. Done a bit of research. You played in six finals for six wins. You never lost a final. <laughs> I didn't even know that. So, look, it was it was great. I, must, I, I do look back across all my footy juniors into Glenelg and into Adelaide, albeit didn't play a whole lot of finals at Adelaide. But when we did, when it counted, we certainly... We felt we did okay, and, and the record, we're always playing in finals, so I was lucky enough to be involved with some good sides. 
Before we get into the final stretch of this episode, we need to take one more break here on A5Q. Now, this podcast is partnered with Pete and Pedro, the kings of men's hair and beard grooming. The days of the caveman are now over, gentlemen. We all need to keep on top of our hygiene, cleanliness, and style. Unfortunately, most chemist store products do not really achieve this efficiently. If you want high-quality results, you need high-quality products. Pete and Pedro, established in 2013, offers premium hair and beard grooming products and tools that will actually get in there, moisturize, rehydrate, and clean your scalp, hair, and beard thoroughly without burning a hole in your wallet. From shampoos and conditioners to hair gels and putties, beard oils, combs, brushes, and even nail clippers, Pete and Pedro has it all. Now, I would never promote or partner with a brand I did not use or trust. Guys, I've been using Pete and Pedro products for years now and can confidently say there are no better hair and beard products on the market. Gentlemen, if you are looking to take your grooming game to that next level without breaking the bank, do yourself a favor and check out Pete and Pedro. And if you use my special discount code, DMATO10, spelled D-A-M-A-T-O-1-0, you'll score yourself an extra 10% off on what is already a great deal. The link to Pete and Pedro is down in the description below. But for right now, let's get back to the show. I've had Tyson Edwards on, I had him on the show a couple of years ago actually, and asked him this same question, and there's a million different ways I could ask this, but just to put it simply, what went wrong in 1999? Well, probably a lot of things really. There was some key injuries too. Tony Modra was gone. I don't think we became complacent. I don't think we would say that. Because the season started well. You were four and two after six games, which is better than 97 and 98. True. So the expectation maybe, and and that ultimately probably got Malcolm Blight as well. Like if you recall, he resigned, I think, three or four games out, I think, from the end of the year. So, yeah, difficult to be definitive because it was probably a lot of things that you know, I certainly didn't think we were, were that bad. You have a look at what Richmond were able to accomplish more recently and Hawthorne as well across their time to be able to create something of a Brisbane back in the early 2000s to playing three or four grand finals and win three in a row. Like, it's just an astonishing achievement. So maybe it was just we weren't the experience to be able to hang in there to do what we need to do. When was it that you decided that was it for you because 99 was your final season how did you come to that decision because you were only 29 at the time the injuries I felt the game was a little bit quicker and it doesn't take long to sort of catch up with you and I was playing key posts but I wasn't able to probably maintain that into 99 and I was sort of probably being moved around a little bit more just to fill some holes whether it be forward or whether that be back and it was probably about four to six weeks out, I think Daniel too. Like I was, Matthew Lipchak and I were pretty tight and we were working with each other. We both sort of pretty much had the same mindset that, hey, look, I, I think this is probably the, the plan of attack for the last year. Once I'd sort of called it, the relief, just the enjoyment for the last three or four weeks just to be around everyone and, and the results didn't go that well. If you look the irony of my last game was against the Kangaroos, and I think they beat us by almost 13 goals that particular day. We absolutely got beat up. So that was at Footy Park, but Malcolm Blight resigned 
David Pittman was injured. He resigned, or he retired. Matthew Liptak was just getting through. The irony, Lippy and I, there was a competition on radio at the time to do a drop kick. So I did a drop kick in the last game, and we had a bit of a laugh at that. So to your point, it was a, a unique time at the football club in '99. There was a bit of talk about Malcolm Blight in 1999. Did you feel that he didn't have the passion anymore? Yeah, I, I think this is probably where it's difficult to probably explain. It wasn't the passion. Maybe he was over-passionate and the expectation probably blew a few things up. Just the personalities of a couple of players. And that was reasonably evident sort of throughout the year. And I think that's ultimately where it was time probably the game against Carlton that he realised he'd probably had enough and that was maybe five, six rounds prior to the end of that season. It was just the end of an era, wasn't it? And it was a very quick era because 94, 95, 96, you missed the finals. Blighty comes in, premiers, premiers, and then bottom four again and then it's sort of all over. It was a very quick success period. Yep. And, and again, probably goes back to what I said earlier too. Like it, it's it's such a, a challenging and difficult environment to be around. You know, like you're you're constantly trying to get better, which I love being around. But you've got to push people to almost breaking them because you don't know how far they can go. And so that's the type of injury. Sorry, that's the type of environment that you sort of sit within, which then ultimately could cause injuries. And if they do, it's such a competitive nature environment. It's difficult sometimes to get back in. The expectation that we all had, we'd accomplish this, we are probably a little bit tired towards the end, ultimately, and relationships were strained, and probably the right outcome has happened at that particular time where Malcolm felt that he had to move on. A number of us felt that it was probably time to give it away, so we all had a, a really good, enjoyable time. So were you content to retire, or was it sad, or did you ever consider going on another year or were you very happy just to say that's it I felt like I probably could have played another year Daniel too like but to be on the list for another year might have played half the games again but would have had to have thrown in my job and then at the end of that maybe go and find another job and who knows if my body would have held up I didn't have big injuries but I occasionally had the occasional niggle either a hamstring or a calf. So I was getting close. I felt like I had one more, but I think going from sort of semi-professional to full-time sort of forced my hand. And I was six foot one in terms of height. So if I had been six five, six six, maybe the club would have said, yeah, no, we want to keep you going for another year or so. But I look back and I was reasonably content. I think your question right at the start where you said to me, did you want to play AFL? I hoped that one day that I would have played 200 AFL games and two premierships and I would have said, how good's that? Now, I know that's sometimes a little difficult because a lot of players have played two or 300 and not played finals, but I got to 153 and played one and missed the other one. What I set out to achieve almost happened, but I thoroughly enjoyed my time and 23 years on now, I'm had multiple roles within Adelaide Football Club, Ackland Elk, and I've been able to critique and watch the club that I love being Adelaide and watch Port Adelaide play almost every home game and some away games throughout that time. So I'm blessed to still be involved in football. Yeah, awesome answer. 
Jamo, now, just as we are about to close up, in your entire AFL career through the years, who is the best player you ever played with and why? Who's the best player you ever played against and why? And lastly, who's the best coach you ever played under and why? Yeah, played with. I think probably if I said SANFL, I'd probably definitely say Chris McDermott, which led into, obviously, Adelaide. Incredibly brave, a ripping bloke, and he's a ripping bloke. Difficult. You certainly look at Tony Module was just freakish in what he did. I think he'd say he didn't train really hard, but he was reasonably fit through his passion of surfing and strong, but just would provide some freakish moments. And Darren Jarman, for what he did, how laconic he was, how smooth he was, how polished he was. You could probably reel off a number of other players as well. An opponent, and probably, look, I was lucky enough to stand Jason Dunstall many times, Stephen Kernahan many times, Tony Lockett many times, and Gary Ablett. Just blokes with incredible strength and longevity. I never felt that you could get seriously hurt on the footy field, and I thought there were two blokes that could do it to you, and I stood Darren Mullane very early before he passed away. But Tony Lockett was just a brute of a man and so angry and so powerful. So certainly out of those three or four that I've mentioned, the greatest sort of opposition that I would have, but there's so many others that played. And the greatest coach for me, I think, Malcolm Blight, just through the autonomy and, and the ease and allowed me to play in a manner that he felt that would get the best out of me, you know. And, and certainly I'm very strong and close would be Graham Corns. Like, I had him for the two years at Glenelg. He, so he gave me an opportunity to play league football, really supportive. And then the four years at Adelaide was, he drove me pretty hard and we still catch up now from time to time. And he drove me harder than most other players. He, he acknowledges that. So didn't get the best out of me, but certainly taught me a lot about football. So, yeah, I've been very lucky to have the teams and be involved in the teams that I have and the coaches that I've been under. Rod Jamison, it's been fantastic to have you on the podcast. I really appreciate your time and I wish you all the best with everything you're doing now and also with your family and your three daughters. I wish you all the best. Thank you very much for your time tonight. No, Daniel, it's been a pleasure too and listen to yours as well. Keep up the good work. We really enjoy the chat. Thank you very much. And that is a wrap for another episode. I trust you enjoyed this conversation and I thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and a review and I'll catch you all on the next episode of Amato's Fifth Quarter Podcast.